wanted to have this episode out to you guys sooner. However, I actually completely upended the refinery, which is the, the studio behind the podcast. And I'm currently sitting in it now. Uh, refinery the third is what I'm calling it. And it's completely shifted the energy. And it's part of a larger plan. Uh, this is the second installment of Earth's Forbidden Secrets. And I know we talked in the first and second installment that it would be on video, and it is. However, I've reviewed it, and and it's not good. It doesn't look good. You guys can't see the screen, so you can't actually read along with us. It's just two idiots sitting in a chair. So we're not gonna. I'm not gonna upload this one either, uh, the video version. However, from the next episode, because I basically changed the way we were gonna do it. We did it through Zoom so I could share information, share screen. And the third episode of this one is very, very exciting. This is a format that is developing. And it's part of the reason that I upended the refinery, gave it a spring clean, like two garbage bags worth of crap came out of here, and just reset it and reset the energy to re-engage. And it's this research that is spurred me on. We're really enjoying doing these. And this one doesn't have any articles at the start. This one is basically, the first time we sat down and recorded, we recorded two episodes. And this is the second of those episodes. I know my mic, the gain on it is not good. I'm going to do my best to clean it up in the audio. And from the third episode, it's a lot cleaner. And obviously, the, the one, one of the big reasons it's a lot cleaner in the third episode is that we're using the new cables that our Patreon supporters who donated... Uh, to become first or second or third degree coders, they uh, it's through you guys that the well the sound sounds better now because of it. It's cleaner in my ears. So thanks very much uh, for those fellow coders who have donated to the podcast and look us up on Patreon. If you wanted to swing a couple of bucks our way, that'd be awesome. I'm engaging with a few international guests, and that's proving getting the time right is interesting. So I'm locking down some dates for that and look forward to those interviews. Something a bit different, however, something very cool as well is coming. So really appreciate your support. Enjoy part two, Earth's Forbidden Secrets. Not too sure as I... It's going to be a big mystery too as to as to what the music's going to be for this episode. I'm not really sure. So enjoy whatever it is. I think something rowdy, maybe because Valentine's Day, maybe we do Plain Lady Jane. That's a cool song. And we'll finish with... I'm not sure. Wait and see. Thanks to Jono for the intro. Thanks to all the supporters out there. Really appreciate your time. Hope you are trying to remain as sane as you can in this crazy world. And hopefully this podcast is a bit of an escape. And you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Be kind. Be cool. Be disciplined. And we'll talk soon. Cheers. One, two, three, four.
and we're back. We discussed, uh, look, we're going to come clean. We're going to try and record as many episodes in one night as we can of this book uh, just to get some content, aren't we? How you going, guys? Hey, guys. Uh, So, yeah, that's why we're in the same clothes. Okay. Timer is on. All right. Okay. So yeah, we uh, we're we're, we're trying to keep to a schedule. Holocaust is impending. That's right. It's whatever time to midnight. Uh, it is nine minutes till midnight. It is witching hour, but it's cool, man. We're Thank enjoying this. Uh, let's uh, let's let's go. rock on, brother. Hit me with the. Uh, so we were talking. We were asking. Yeah, we were talking. Yeah, we're we're playing with names. <laughs> so we, we we left with a few questions, didn't we? Right? Yeah. How can there be? You know, the last one was how can there be a computer code or algorithm encoded into the text of the Bible? The reason I'm rereading that in the start of the next episode is because I don't really know much about that. So I'm hoping that Max enlightens us. And that's just a few of the examples. There are literally dozens more. In the ensuing investigations of such enigmatic riddles and artifacts, there have been many amazing and sometimes downright outrageous statements made by the people in numerous publications throughout the world. So many, in fact, that it becomes difficult to distinguish truth from fiction. Truth? Truth from fiction. Theories have been put forth concerning vast armies of slaves, teams of craftsmen devoting their entire lives to the completion of one small object, master stonemasons, alien intervention, beings from other dimensions, time travellers, gods from other planets. Look, you know, D, all of the above. All have been suggested as possible explanations and the list goes on. At this point, you may be asking, but why should we really care anyway? What's all the fuss about? The past is just the past, isn't it? Well, interestingly enough, such may not always have been the case. Because the past may also be a good indication of the future, and notwithstanding the fact that it would be just awfully nice to actually know the truth, there are many scholars who believe that there are certain routine events that occur on Earth that concern both mankind and the planet we live on significantly. Many believe them to be events that are in fact a normal part of our solar system's rotational mechanism and that they happen in a regular and particular orbital cycles, which is, you know, we can't deny. Don't remember, don't forget pillar 43, man. Mm-hmm. There was four dates on that. That that pillar lined up to four dates. One of them and was one the... Of them is now. And one of them is now. One of them was when the world ended last time. There is also real evidence to suggest that people of the Earth's ancient past possess some very detailed information concerning these events. Many of them base their entire cultures, sciences, and religions on them. And there are also other more esoteric signs, enigmatic references and hints of a hidden book or code with which we may be able to unlock these mysteries of our past and future. And when I read that, I was like, he is one of us, man. There's definitely a code to unlock, Max. Yep. There definitely is, dude. Come down. Come down. (laughs) Give us your idea. At face value, it seems significant that those people who inhabited our far distant past obviously considered a detailed understanding of these celestial events to be far more noteworthy and important than any other religious knowledge, science, or indeed anything else at all. In fact, they consider the information to be so important that they appear to have based their entire civilizations upon it. The question is why? Why such extraordinary preoccupation with the astronomy and the zodiac? What for? What kind of information could they glean from such a constant and accurate scrutiny of the heavens that they deem so important they would account for it 
and the meticulous degree of perfection insisted on aligning their structures. And that is that, you know, the alignment of the structures, that's the one thing. Once you want to grasp the geometry and the mathematics and everything they need to have understood to do that, it's insane. How on earth did they acquire such extraordinary sophisticated knowledge to begin with? Who or where could they have possibly acquired such information from? Much of it is data that would probably be extremely useful to us today, and yet we have only learned a fraction of it, and we are still searching through the ancient myths and modern sciences, trying to fully comprehend that which we have so far managed to gather. Most people think the zodiac names as for, as little, 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 little. most people think of the zodiacs zodiac as names for nice patterns in the sky or a port or a report they read in a daily newspaper. But the zodiac is actually an incredibly complex celestial mechanism. It must be clearly understood that just the ancient knowledge of its existence in a standing is astounding because even a basic understanding of the phenomenon of precession of the zodiac requires obtaining some very advanced scientific know-how. It does not happen by someone merely observing the stars, even if they were to spend their entire life doing so. Yet we ourselves obtain the knowledge of precession of the cycles of the zodiac from the ancients, not through discovering it of our own accord. What's interesting about the names of the zodiac and all that stuff mm. is if you dig into that, no one knows who named them. It just is what it is, man. Mm-hmm. No one knows. That's interesting. Even when the earth was still believed to be flat, still is by some people. How <laughs> oh, that's around. <laughs> Jesus. Do you know what I found the most funny thing? Did you hear about the guy put a GoFundMe together yeah. to prove the earth was flat? Right. Got a decent amount of coin too, a couple hundred grand. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> proved the earth was round. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think at, at at heart they they have they have their hearts in the right place in terms of they're exploring man. Question everything. Absolutely. But the problem is the militant flat earthers who then jump on board, you know, it's like anything. Everything starts off with a good a good cause. Yeah, we're just asking a question. And then it usually gets hijacked yeah. for some other reason. Mm. So yeah, it's you know, their heart's in the right place mm-hmm. in terms of of the only reason we all think the general populace thinks the earth is round is because that's what we've been told. Yeah. Just like this paradigm we're discussing now. Absolutely. So that's at heart. That's what I felt like the flat earth. Yeah, they got, they're began, just questioning their existence. Began being, but yeah. then it's just been hijacked by lunatics. Like, no, <laughs> no, it really is. And then they create the fucking ice walls and, <laughs> you know, and they just start making up shit. All right. All right, no, all right. I didn't mean to pull a chain. Sorry, Sorry man. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Because the thing is, if you start ranting, I'll start ranting. Oh, dude, but isn't that what we're good at? I know. We're reading a book. (laughs) All right. This is different. Okay. This is a new era. It's a new era. Let's have a go. All right. Uh, So how could that possibly be? No, look, I pulled the chain and I realized what I'd done. I saw the look on your face like, (laughs) flat earth ass. (laughs) (laughs) Procession is the result of a slow axial wobble the earth maintains as it travels around the sun. This fact, alone, this fact alone presents substantial evidence that our history may not really be what it seems. And if our history really is substantially different to what has been presented to us and may truly hold significant information in regard to our future, as the evidence seems to suggest, then why is the real information being withheld from the general public? It is one of the intentions of this book to examine many of these subjects and the urgent significance it holds for us all. But be warned. To properly answer these questions, we have to be prepared to assimilate a vast amount of data 
and to look outside the orderly academic framework we've been given in our history. Yeah, we know, Max. We That's know. We're doing, Max. <laughs> we're trying. Yeah, we know, man. We must also be prepared for the moment to objectively look outside any of any currently prevailing religious belief systems we may embrace and attempt to examine all the evidence with an open mind and blind before blindly believing any doctrine. We don't believe any doctrine, man. We got it. Please understand at this point, it is not my desire to attack any religious religion or creed during the course of this book, nor do I wish to diminish anyone's personal religious beliefs. My sole intention is to rational is, is rational assimilation of evidence. For those of you who are religious, I ask you to remember before dismissing any of this evidence offhandedly that Jesus himself said that the truth shall set you free. If any person reading this belongs to a religious organization that rests on a foundation so frail it cannot be faced by the facts and hard evidences that were presented during the course of this work, then I would suggest that it may be prudent for them to examine their surroundings and consider the sad possibility that their faith may have been misplaced. Well put. <laughs> that's, I thought you were ranting, man. I know. I know, man. That's, that's yeah. Um, especially those poor unfortunates belonging to the new wave of unbelievably misguided radical uh, Islamic groups who somehow mistakenly believe they're doing the will of Allah while in fact twisting the words of their own faith beyond recognition and blowing themselves and others up in the unfathomably deranged belief that mass murder leads to paradise and they'll be gwine up to heaven if they kill those who embrace a different belief system. But th- but but then most such individuals are usually banned or prevented from reading anything that may interfere with their doctrine in any way. Radical religious extremism it seem, seems to have been in our world since the onset of religion, either from one side or the other. Of course, back in the 15th century, it was Christian suicide bombers like Guy Fawkes trying to blow up London and not those who embrace Islam. But the same extremist misinterpretation of doctrines was evident even then. Do you know what? Mm. I reckon this is around 9 11. Ah, very well, could have been. Just because of the just gone yeah. the Islamic twist? Yep. That it was, it was heavy. At heavy, time. man. It was heavy at that heavy. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because remember we were reading Otis and he was talking about Korean War. You know what I mean? He'd just come out of World War II. He was talking about the Korean War because mm-hmm. that's what he was writing about. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So it's an interesting to you can somewhat prevalent for yeah. the time. In any serious attempt at discovering the real truths to our past differences of religious opinion should be set aside and there is no piece of information that should be left out. Not anything, no ruin, artifact, doctrine, myth, legend, fossil, upart, or otherwise should be considered too small or insignificant to be included in the puzzle and examined for its relevance. I can't get puzzle out. That's the second or third time I haven't been able to say puzzle. For Without the evidence discovering any real answers to our past, without contradictions, would not be possible and no more than another fanciful theory. The thing is, my intrepid reader, when you really get involved in the topic and look at what data actually does exist, much of it is in the form of hard physical evidence that completely and utterly dissolves both our academic and theological views of history. You see it reinforced by a myriad of ancient texts, then you witness the extraordinary lengths that some governments and both the academic and religious communities at large are willing to go to just to keep the information out of the public eye. It becomes very hard to keep the word conspiracy from springing to mind, and you can forget the media. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't that come through? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that, yeah. Just cut and paste that and post it to Facebook. 
Um, naturally, I am well aware that whenever anyone mentions the word conspiracy these days, especially when referring to the science or archaeological community, they're working on very thin ice and toying with their own credibility. That's the, oh, here you go, an Al Qaeda, an Al -Qaeda reference. Mm -hmm. So that again, I reckon that's where we're at. Um, it's interesting in that time, right? So Gobekli Tepe is irrefutable. There's all these other stuff that's now becoming irrefutable. So it's not that the timeline's been pushed back. 10,000 more years in the last 10 years, you know, like that. So it's interesting. Eh? The modern world tends to be very skeptical about conspiracies, unless we're talking about Al Qaeda, there you go, or perhaps some other terrorist splinter cell, either real or invented. And the scientific community considers itself to be reasonably impregnable behind the walls of academia. It is created for itself, and they simply hate people who attempt to tunnel in underneath and undermine their doctorates. We didn't we just talk about that? We have been deeply conditioned to immediately associate the word conspiracy with the word theory, yet if one is to analyse the nature of what conspiracy really is, it suddenly becomes easy to see a number of them happening all around us almost every day. All a conspiracy actually consists of is two or more people, maybe even a committee, deciding to do something in order to achieve mutually desirable outcomes for themselves and not really telling anyone else about it. One person needs to say, hey, if I do this and you do that, then this should happen and we'll be better off. And bang, you have a conspiracy. Just look at insider training. There's a nice little conspiracy for you. <laughs> Not to spew off the topic, but I saw a really good tweet from some NFL player the other day. Yeah. And it was basically, he said, if I can't bet on games as an NFL player, which I'm totally cool with, how can politicians play the stock market? Yeah. That's a good question. What a little not that's a nice little conspiracy for you <laughs> because because NFL players can't be trusted, yeah, that's right, that's right, and it's the highest people of the land because you can't question the politician. Oh, here we go. Look at this a, a, a conspiracy can take many forms, some more complex than others. Look at price fixing and what do you think our world leaders are doing when they're meeting behind closed doors, socializing, playing darts over a couple of beers, and talking about the garden. <laughs> No, of course they're not. They're planning moves for the future, negotiating, saying, if you do this, I'll do that. Well, gee, that sounds like you've got it, a conspiracy. Even in tandem, if you want to get finicky about it, because they're doing it all behind closed doors, a publicly elected leaders of the public have privately conspired to discuss things that concern the public out of the public earshot. They've conspired to further conspire, <laughs> if you like. You know how it goes. Yes, we do, Max. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, <laughs> yes, we do. Let's be realistic about it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be realistic about it. Criminals are charged with conspiracy regularly. In fact, two persons with criminal records need only to converse with each other to be charged with conspiracy. Yet when someone mentions the word conspiracy in regards to the government or especially the academia community, there is invariably a huge media storm whipped up around them and they are publicly ridiculed. <laughs> So true. I love that things have changed. So when are we then to assume that no one but criminals or terrorists ever plan things in private in order to achieve an outcome that is mutually favourable for them? I mean, in reality, isn't that what politics is actually all about? That's why parliaments have closed sessions to plan things, to conspire, so they all know what the next move will be. Entire economies can either flourish or flounder from the outcome of such meetings. It's called politics. If done on a corporate level, we call it insider trading and you go to jail. It's a bit obvious, really. But in fact, in the real world, conspiracies happen virtually all the time. 
blatant double standards constantly flown in public view while being cunningly denied can always be a fascinating topic. When used by powerful governments who don't even bother to disguise them anymore, they can also become a little scary too. Yeah, we, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, we, we, we know that. Yeah. Scary is a word that is <laughs> needs to be used right now. Don't get me wrong. I don't like to think man, of the worst of anyone. Max is feeling very prophetic at this point. I know, man. <laughs> Max is definitely one of us. Uh, okay, here we go. A, a blatant invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Okay, so there you go. So that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get me wrong. I don't like to think the worst of anyone, but looking at it logically and realistically, what, after all, was the blatant invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq by the coalition of the willing? Or was that a coalition of the economically coerced, if not a conspiracy to deceive the peoples of at least three nations, if not the world? Well, look, after 20 years and we just left all the shit there and, and it was a comp- it's actually absolute failure, then, yeah, I look, we could we could discuss that. Of course, when an <laughs> that is so, so disgusting, by the way, uh, just for the record, I can't even. Yeah. I can't even. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Of course, when initiating any such mass deception, the best way is to prevent any real conspiracy from being exposed. It is to create an unending air of ridicule around anyone making the claims reporting to it. This is because if you can make the person look stupid enough in public, whether they are or not, even by dropping snide little comments here and there at the correct moments, then other people won't want to listen to what the person is saying either, even if it's very important and concerns them greatly. You get the ooh, but some people say syndrome. It sort of goes something like this. Sort of goes or something like this. Uh, some people say the theory is stupid. Yeah, what you believe it? You're kidding. But wait, you're not stupid too, are you? It's a tried and true formula. It's a tried and true formula. I'm just, just mine's just slowly blowing in the background. This, we need the button. Yeah, uh, this is an excellent prologue. Yeah. I really like Max. Yeah, I do. He's cool. No one wants to feel that they might be thought of as stupid or weird. Now, do they? It's too late for us, man. Uh, We're just sophomaniacs over here, man. Uh, Politicians and media tend to use this method frequently, while the Fox Fix News Network seems to refine it down to an art form. It got worse, brother. They do promote the party line. Yeah, that's right. It all makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max left the building. They do it to promote the party line, but just always seem to neglect to mention who these some people actually are. Of course, due to the cunning media portrayals, to make an actual conspiracy appear virtually non-existent to the public, you just have to put the word theory in the same sentence and even just publicly call it a conspiracy claim and the public subconscious will automatically associate it with the word theory and view the person making the claim as a conspiracy theorist. Then everyone will start thinking of X-Files, UFOs and lunatic fringe and it will all go away. It's not going away. Uh, planting this type of seed in someone's mind is perfect for eliminating free and independent thought. As was once pointed out, an enormously witty and typically humorous article by the extraordinarily pro- prolific composer Frank Zappa. Many people, when faced with something that may require serious thought or opinion, or perhaps may require them to think outside of what is accepted norm, seem to willingly lower their social intellectual profile and undergoing this strange kind of self-inflicted homemade mental nose job. <laughs> almost every day in order to maintain their status as one of the guys. As he pointed out, many modern people treat intelligence as some kind of hideous deformity in order to cosmeticize it. They willingly lower their perceived IQ level in order to be able to converse about insignificant drivel with their peers. 
let's face it, it's no good to appear too intelligent because no one wants to hang around with someone who is smarter or possibly more informed than they are. Now, do they? This is simply not fun. Look, I think it depends on who you hang around with. Like, we like to challenge each other intellectually. Look, we like to talk some shit too. Don't, let's not get it twisted. However, yeah, we like to be challenged no, that's intellectually. Wrong. And accept new ideas. Mm. But that's the, you know, we've dedicated five years to do that, right? Yeah. Perhaps you remember the story of the Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen. I like Max, man. He's the, he's one of us. Hopefully we can get him on. I'd love to talk to this See, dude. He's using a story here to then tell to the story. The point, exactly, man. Sort of thing. It's yeah. Gonna, it's our long-winded replies. Exactly. Are always because of that. A UTC, man. The tale relates how King had employed an expensive and gifted tailor for the task of making his new outfit. The king's ego was enormous, and he paid the tailor a vast amount of gold to make him a suit that would be the most splendid in all the land. And when the clothes were finished, the king was positive that he actually had none on. The cunning tailor assured the king the clothes were in fact woven from an enchanted thread that could only be seen possessed of those of great intelligence. But to the very stupid, he said, the fabric would be invisible. All the members of his course at once assured the king that the fabrics he had donned were the finest and his new clothes were absolutely superb and magnificent, indeed the most splendid and dazzling they'd ever seen. So then the king turned to them and said he was very pleased they were not all stupid, not wishing to himself appear stupid to the members of his court. He walked about the kingdom naked and had a parade to show the town his new attire. <laughs> the entire town cheered and praised the emperor's new clothes and discussed the splendour of the magnificent garments and the quality of the stitching among them, until one young peasant boy who knew nothing of the ego dared to ask, why is the king naked? <laughs> and it was true. The king, in fact, was no more than a naked fool surrounded by bigger fools had been controlled by their own egos. <laughs> the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> well, in a scenario almost reminiscent of a scene from Anderson's story, there is now enough real evidence to totally disprove the history you've been asked to believe. Much of it is right out in plain view and yet is still being ignored and in some case flatly denied by mainstream academia. Those people who try to investigate these things to bring the public attention issues that may sometimes go against the norm are ridiculed, usually by someone with a degree who invariably uses their position of assumed knowledge as a means to completely disregard and discredit what is often significant research or substantial facts. No opposing evidence is ever presented by the academic quarter, and the poor researcher is usually subjected to a series of vilifying personal attacks designed to shift attention away from the actual evidence they were trying to present in the first place. <laughs> if they then attempt to protest and return to the actual issue, they are generally harassed, banned from archaeological sites, and made the brunt of endless bad media coverage until they finally just shut up and go away. The whole issue was then closed, hushed up and forgotten as quickly as possible, hopefully never to see the light of day. It is sad but unfortunately very common occurrence these days to see an archaeologist, anthropologist or an academic heavyweight who is backed into a corner by indisputable evidence suddenly start brandishing their degree and launch into a series of scathing personal attacks against their opposition simply because they can't come up with a valid scientific rebuttals to dispute the hard, cold facts they've been presented with. Makes me think of Zawi Hawass. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, when so many debates surrounding these issues are continuously and repeatedly conducted in such predictable, completely unscientific manner, after all, it becomes difficult to think imaginably enough to see anything else but a conspiracy. Look, I think, again, since this has been written, that's changed. Like, there's a more joining of disciplines. 
in well, not only that I think maybe podcasting and the yeah. internet has opened itself up to there's, there's more platforms so yeah. it's harder to bury someone that's right because yeah someone can you know they can keep putting out unless they get banned off of social media mm. um but even then there's plenty of other channels now exactly you can get you can continue to put out your content mm-hmm. so it's harder to silence people now mm. unless you get cancelled mm. all right we're nearly we're nearly we're nearly into the book ladies and gentlemen this has been really good i like it um i think it's excellent in all reality any reasonable theories need to be fully evaluated all in the world leading archaeological teams need to combine their resources all the available information needs to be accessed and viewed together as a whole. All of the monuments need to be examined en masse. All the existing ancient texts from all countries need to be studied together as one. Although due to the world's populations and constant religious and racial bickering, such a thing may never actually occur. Yeah. You know what just occurred to me? You know what could do that? AI. Yeah, it could look at it all at the same time. Put it all together and come back with an answer. Mm. Like what's the probability Mm. of there being this given this information yeah yeah you could do that many of these ancient tales have always been viewed exclusively as myth and fantasy but when these ancient myths are corroborated by each other by and by physical evidence and when inexplicable evidence is in turn found to be adequately explained by the myth then it stands to logic and reason that perhaps a more detailed scrutiny may perhaps be in order could some of these ancient texts and scriptures actually contain complex scientific information hidden within the narrative in the form of code or numerology? Numerology. Numer- numerology. Struggle, Street. Struggle. Just, a, just man, we think about the big words I'm getting through. It's just a couple. <laughs> numerology. As Newton and many others have believed. Is there a coming Armageddon? Are we expecting, are we to expect a devastating global war? Could a global catastrophe, a celestial event or polar reversal such as alluded to so often be what we're being warned of in ancient texts and myths? Is this what the monuments and astronomical alignments are trying to tell us? Do they tell us to watch for certain astronomical celestial signs that warn of impending disaster? You would think so. There have been many authors who have theorized that it is indeed so. In fact, it has recently been discovered that there is a computer code or algorithm running through the entire Hebrew Bible that has now been confirmed to be real by many of the world's leading mathematicians. The author who released his study of the code believes it tells us a coming world war. The code appears to speak or predict all major world events, past, present, and future, and simply has no right being there unless someone put it there purposely. This needs to be looked into deeper if he doesn't go deeper. I need to know more if there's a code in the Bible, this being unlocking the code and all. And that someone must either have been a time traveler who knew all the events that would ever befall the world or lived for literally a thousand years or possibly even something else, some intelligence vastly more significant. Does this mean that God is real? Could it be, a, could it be that time is cyclic as some surmised? It sees in the Bible that the end of days will be as the first days and implies that many more in many other texts and legends, pillar 43, but have both of these periods have come and gone before? Is man destined to repeat again the things that have befallen in the past? Yeah, well, it seems to be, Max. A little scarily so, but it seems to be. It is the intention of this work to explore many of these questions in an effort to provide a deeper understanding of our past, our future, ourselves, and the perilous situation we now find ourselves in. Didn't get better, brother. (laughs) (laughs) 
If this is like 2003, 2004. See you in Mexico. <laughs> the journey towards our future begins with an understanding of our past. So I'd first now like to present you a collection of rather intriguing artifacts. Just so you can first see what kind of oop arts, oops arts actually have been found around the planet that might suggest to us that perhaps a wider investigation of our true past may sorely, be sorely needed by the powers that be. There is a myriad of these rather unusual discoveries that have been made, some recently, some many years ago, and all of these artifacts represent discoveries that need to be included as pieces of the puzzle if we ever to gain a coherent picture of our past. So hold on, folks, because when you really start looking into some of these intriguing discoveries and begin to grasp a truly understanding of their real significance and where they may actually come from, the conclusions can be quite astounding. What a good prologue. That was awesome. I'm glad that we read that whole thing. Same. And I hope that people enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, I don't have much to say about that. We sort of discussed it as it went along. Yeah. Apart from... I don't think there is much to say about it. Apart Matt, from the fact that, you know, I, you get a good idea of Max. And he's one of us. And he, he puts it together well. Yeah. You know. He's one of us. Yeah. One of us. One of us. Well, mate, guess what? You're going to give me a break. All right. Your t- my turn. Your yeah, break. Yeah. Give me some lubrication. Give no worries, mate. So this next chapter is riddles from the past. But Mr. McDermott's going to take over for me for a second. La. Clean the pipes. We don't have time for that. It all. <laughs> give me 30 seconds. <laughs> it all started for me when I was a young child and I saw a picture of the Great Pyramid. Amen. Yeah, amen, man. Amen. I was told right then that no one really knew how it was done. And in that moment, I was hooked on our mysterious past. From that moment, all interest in comic books was gone. And for hours, I would pore over my mother's encyclopedias. I couldn't understand much of the text, but the pictures of dinosaurs and ancient mysterious megalithic structures. Did you do that as well? Totally. What did I do? Did you look at the encyclopedias and stuff when you were a kid? Oh, 100%. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, poured over, mate. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. You just, yeah, back and forward, back and forward. Yeah. yeah. Heaps yeah. of times. Mm. Where do they come from, I wondered? Does mankind really have an unknown history that has been lost or forgotten? Could there really have been an advanced civilization far in far ancient times before our recorded history? The questions and debates on the issue have raged for years. <laughs> Please don't move it. Oh, sorry, sorry, mate. The page, yeah, we, my good man. That's right. Sorry. I just completely lose myself. Sorry. Yeah. When? Uh, yeah. Thank you. When asked, most scholars will tell you that it's a nice <laughs> idea, but fanciful at best. There is really no hard evidence to show that such a civilization ever really existed. However, Many others will argue that there is actually a significant body of evidence that does exist that simply cannot be explained away. So, what are the realities? What kind of evidence are we talking about? Just a bunch of weird cave paintings or esoteric theories by strange people? Or is there something more tangible? Or we're strange people. (laughs) (laughs) No comment. To be perfectly honest about it, anthropological evidence however convincing is always circumstantial while legends and myths without evidence are questionable at best and naturally open to individual interpretation so we must look for further corroboration when do 
we find that there is, in fact, a large and ever-growing body of hard physical evidence that goes a long way towards disproving that we have been what we have been led to believe. Jeez, he loves a long sentence. He doesn't he? This evidence tells us that either the history we are taught on of the earth is wrong or the history we are taught of mankind's development is wrong or both. The reality of this is fast becoming far too great to deny and still more evidence to reinforce the conclusion is being found ever more frequently. So the obvious conclusion that we're faced with here is that the academic community is either completely stupid, which is doubtful, or quite simply not telling us the truth. Maybe they're just waiting for the right moment. <laughs> the thing is, what for international listeners who aren't Australian, because I know Max is Aussie, and I'm picking up what he's putting down. Mm. You know what I mean? He's mm. he's very clever, but he's yeah. It's yes, I like it. It's very he's quite tongue in cheek. Mm. Before we try and find where the answers of our puzzle may lie, let's investigate what type of body of evidence of for an ancient civilization of advanced technology actually does exist in what form it takes and whether we are presented with anything that truly cannot be explained. And as you will see, the evidence that our entire history is wrong is indeed quite vast and comes in a great variety of forms. To start with, we can examine some of the tantalizing oop arts. Mentioned in the previous chapter. <laughs> and according to our orthodox history, these objects really are extremely out of place. A word also must be said here on the methods used to date many of these artifacts in objects that contain original material, organic material. The radiocarbon dating method was used, while other inorganic objects were dated by dating the rock strata they were found in and other standard geological methods, as discussed before. Both of these dating techniques are subject to variation depending on past events mm -hmm. that may have occurred at the sites being dated, and this will be discussed later. But for now, consider some of these enigmas, and we delve into the maps of Antarctica. Yeah, well, this is the, you can do the Piri Reese, mate. I'll do the next one. Yeah, righto. So the, we're starting so with the, the Piri Reese map. Piri Reese map of fifteen thirteen. In 1929, there was an amazing map discovered in the Imperial Archives of, at Constantinople that had been sitting virtually unexamined for years. The map, which had been drawn in 1513 by a Turkish admiral named Piri Reis, showed North America, South America, Greenland, and Antarctica. However, what is so perplexing about this map is that Antarctica had not been discovered in 1513. Antarctica was not located until 1820, and America had only been discovered in 1429. A mere 21 years... 1492. Oh, sorry, 1492. A mere 21 years prior to the map's creation, and yet it is mapped quite accurately. Remarkably, the map also depicts several land masses bearing their correct longitudes, even though longitude itself was not discovered until the late 1700s either. Reese 
had been a famous Turkish admiral of the 16th century. He had a passion for maps. He loved cartography and was a highly experienced and respected mariner. In his day, he was considered to be an expert on all Mediterranean lands and coastlines and also held in the favours of the Turkish court. Such a noble status enabled him to enjoy privileged access to the Imperial Library at Constantinople, and he spent much of his time there. In his notes, Rees said that he had based his map on several much older maps he had seen at the library, including one that Columbus is reported to have viewed prior to his voyage to the Americas. The map in question was said to have been captured from the Spaniards in a naval engagement and later given to the Admiral by a Spanish prisoner who had apparently sailed on three of Columbus's New World voyages. Many scholars have indeed suspected that Columbus was in possession of a map that already knew of the existence of America before embarking on his famous voyage of discovery. Reese also wrote a well-known Turkish book on sailing called Kitababi Bariye. Oh, microphone. Bariye? Hang on a second. Oh, we need a cough button. We need a cough button. Mm. I'll just contort myself <laughs> away from the microphone. Karidi uh, Bariye. That's right, yeah, yeah. Bar, 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 yeah, whatever. Bar, Bariye? Kitababi. Yeah. Bariye. I don't know. In which he gives detailed and accurate descriptions of the coastlines, harbour, bays, currents, shallows and straits of the Mediterranean and Aegean seas. He was beheaded by the Turkish court in 1554 or 1555 for reasons now unknown. That's an interesting little tidbit of information. Yeah, I didn't. I'd never knew that, that oh. he was beheaded. No. Oh. Hmm, probably for heresy. Mm, I would say so. Hmm. In case you can't see it, that's the top piece of Africa in the top right of the map and the tip of South America reaching out to it from the left side of the map, running up through the Gulf of Mexico and up into North America. The tip of Antarctica can be seen sticking up at the bottom right. Another interesting point to this map is the strange layout of the South American continent, which looks sort of stretched out in shape. However, viewing the sphere of Earth from space accurately produces this type of view. Funny that. I tell you what, I don't have too much to add to that because that's actually a really good summary of the Piri Reese map. Um, I don't know whether you can see it on the screen there, but there is the Piri Reese map there. Mm. And he's marked South America, Africa, and Antarctica. And yeah, look, the Perry Reese map is a fascination for us both, isn't it? That's one of those ones that we've looked at a bit. And I encourage everyone, if you can't see it on the screen, to go and actually have a look at it. Um, there was many weird maps, though, and he's given us another one. The Orontius Phineas map of 1531. Orontius Phineas? Uh, Orontius Phineas? Maybe. Yeah, Orontius. I, I reckon. Yeah, Orontius Phineas. I like that. That's why I read it. Orontius Phineas map was found in 1960 by Charles Hapgood, and it too apparently showed the continent of Antarctica along with the accurate outlines of Antarctic rivers that are now covered by thick glaciers. The map was found in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., where it had been sitting unstudied for a great many years. In the map, 
the continent and coastline is shown to be free of ice, like the Piri Reese map. It too shows an accurate description of the Ross Sea, which is today is totally hidden beneath the floating ice shelf, several hundred metres thick. Studies of actually core samples from taken from the Antarctic ice shelf has also clearly revealed numerous layers of strata in the ice, showing the area has indeed gone through several periods of dramatic environmental change. Some sedimentary deposits were, that were found in the samples were from seawater that had flowed into the area and were actually datable. The test shows that the sediment would, sediments were deposited somewhere around 4,000 years ago, which indicates the Ross Sea would have had to have been flowing and free from ice at the time for the deposits to have occurred. We also now know they've found trees and stuff with the ice receding. They've found a whole heap of stuff in Antarctica. Well, and look, Antarctica. Yeah, but how weird. old? Uh, how old are the trees? They fossilized because we all know Antarctica. Mm. Well, it's all theorized mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that Antarctica was once ice-free because it was moving down to its current location. It was never at that. Um, like when it was forested, mm. it was dinosaur times sort of mm. thing gondwanaland days sort of thing when it was splitting off and we should just remember too that charles hapgood is the guy that basically promoted catastrophic flooding in the americas and stuff and mm. like we said before he was he got the the prize for geology or whatever it is i can't remember what it is now but he literally got it on his deathbed and he said the only problem that i have is that i can't Shove it in because right? yeah, they were all <laughs> they were all dead. Yeah, he can't. Everyone who was holding him back, mm. yeah, they, they, he he couldn't gloat to his uh, peers no, that he was right. That's right. So he was on his deathbed, and that was the, yeah. And now that's accepted. Yeah, that's how long it took. That's it. And now look at Randall Carson's stuff that mm -hmm. he's put out. Mm -hmm. All right, the Borsch map. The Borsch Thirty-seven. Felipe Le Borsch was a French <laughs> geographer of the 18th century who also drew a map that clearly shows Antarctica, except that Borsch's map shows Antarctica two separate landmasses with detailed shorelines. For many years, this map was generally considered to be wrong because when Antarctica was discovered, it actually looked like looked nothing like what Borsch had drawn. Then, in 1958, a seismic survey of Antarctica was carried out, which surprisingly showed that Antarctica was indeed two archipelago islands covered by a thick layer of ice that made it appear as only one landmass. And not only that, but the general topography of the lands beneath the ice matches the drawings on the Borsch map in every detail. So how on earth can this be in any way possible? This map means that Borsch was in possession of a correct map showing Antarctica a hundred years before it was discovered. And not only that, but without any ice on it. Antarctica has not been in an ice-free condition for a minimum of at least 10,000 mm. years. Many scientists believe that the period of time to be more like several million years and uh just have to put make the do you see what i see do you see what i see australia australia and that's a pretty accurate depiction of the west coast of australia too into the australian bite look at that mm. and there's tasmania yep there's the base of tasmania so that's interesting as well that that is actually the first time on any of these ancient maps that i've seen mm. australia no 100 percent uh, not enough detail. I need to look at this Borsch map. 
more in more detail. I want to know what this writing says. Mm, Interesting. Because I need... We need to find that. We need to find that. Note that down. Surely someone's got got that. We can purchase it. Yeah. The Franco Rosselli map of 1508. Franco Rosselli was a renowned Florentine cartographer in the 15th century who created a relatively small but richly illustrated copper plate engraving hand-coloured on vellum measuring just 6 by 11 inches. The piece is now kept in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. At the time of Rosselli created the map, cartography was still a relatively new and experimental art, which makes the revelations in his world map more quite amazing. The map's depiction of Antarctica is a work of great accuracy and even names the area quite specifically is Antarcticus. Hmm. That's interesting. The details on the Rosselli map are extremely well painted and as with the previous maps, geological features such as the Ross Sea and Wilkes Land are particularly easy to identify on it. Again, what is so perplexing about this extraordinary map is the year it was painted in. Oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. Cough button. Yeah. <laughs> Again, what is so perplexing about this extraordinary map is the year that it was painted in 1508. According to our history, this is a full three and a half centuries before Antarctica was discovered. And yet here again, we have Antarctica depicted accurately on a 15th century Florentine map. So that obviously it's not uh, obvious to us already. Antarctica is the common thread through these maps, isn't it? Like it seems seems to be the focus of these maps. Yeah. So why was it the focus of these maps? Exactly. And how does Antarctica be free of ice? I know that we have a theory that involves geomagnetics and that the fact the ice chases the poles. Yeah. That somewhere in this room, there's about 10 or 12 pages of research that was done two and a half years ago. And there's a little ball, a little stress ball as well. Yeah. Yes. That somewhere. We drew up. Yeah. There's somewhere in this room. It's in the cupboard, I think. But yeah, that's, that seems to be. But we digress. Mm. The Mercator map of 1538. And even yet another intriguing map is one drawn in 1538 by Mercator, another highly respected cartographer who lived in the 16th century. His works are quite famous, and you can still buy a Mercator atlas in shops today. Mercator was known as periodic to periodically update his works and produce a new, more definitive world atlas as more shores became charted and more accurate charts became available to him. In doing such an update, in 1538 world map was replaced by a new one in 1569. However, we now know that not only was his 1538 map far more accurate than the latter one, but what proved to be even more amazing was that it also contained correct measurements of longitude. To put it all, to put all this mention of longitude into some sort of perspective for you, longitude is the distance in degrees east or west of the prime meridian. Due to the Earth's rotation, it is far harder to calculate longitude than it is latitude, which can be measured by using the stars of the sun for observation. To calculate longitude requires an equation of distance equals speed times time, and most importantly, an accurate clock. Mm -hmm. Discovering longitude was once described as the greatest of all naval problems, and in the 1700s, an actual board of longitude was set up in England to solve the issue. In 1714, Sir Isaac Newton appeared before the board and explained that the real problem 
was that a watch required for such accuracy has not yet been invented. The Queen then offered a prize of £20,000 to any man who might build such a device. And finally, in 1761, a man by the name of Harrison claimed the prize and put forth his prototype chronometer, which then ushered in a new era of sea travel for the world. During the 19th century, maps then began being updated with the correct degrees of longitude. However, Mercator's map of 1538 was marked with correct longitude a full 223 years before it was discovered. Where was he able to gain the information from? It is obvious that Mercator himself had no real knowledge of longitude at the time and must have borrowed or been given the information from another source because he then updated his subsequent maps incorrectly with what was considered to be more recent and therefore supposedly more reliable information. These maps constitute some extremely significant evidence indeed. For if ancient man had never circumnavigated the globe or possessed any knowledge of longitude, then how can any of these maps exist? Yeah, wow. Interesting. That's cool, man. That's an interesting point. That's interesting. The longitude thing is always the – and the, you can see here's the original Mercator map. When I, when I saw the thing Mercator, hang on a minute, didn't that was the atlas we had at school, I'm yeah. pretty sure it was a Mercator yeah. atlas. The name is very familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That wasn't the first time I'd seen that name. But yeah, the map thing's interesting, man, because, again, all these maps are copies from – Previous older maps. Other maps, yeah. It's, so where are they from? Yeah, where the other maps come from? from? And look, we, you know, and again, since then, you know, probably since this has been written, obviously we know that there's uh, Indigenous Australian uh, tribes in South America, so they obviously made it across the ocean. You know, we know the Vikings were pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. The Egyptians came to Australia. We now know that, you know, through Muhammad and Richard and all that, you know, the Gosford Cliffs, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. The fact that there's boomerangs in the Egyptian Museum that are 5,000 BC. So they knew. Somehow they knew how to sail the world. Mm -hmm. And the only way he knows if you got a map, it looks out, turns out that there was maps. Yeah. You know? Exactly. The map thing's interesting. And we're going to come back to, I guarantee, look, we're going to come back to the Borscht map. Whether that's the start, maybe that's one of our topics before one of the next chapters. Because mm. the fact that it, only because it, look at the writing that's on Australia. What does that say? We yeah. need to know what that says. Yeah. What was the date of the Borscht map? Go back. The Borscht map was 1737. Hmm. So that was a couple of, you know, so we we're dealing with the 1500s. So it's a couple of hundred years after that. So 1531. Yeah. 1513. I'm just thinking about the 1700s because Cook came to map the East Coast. Yes. So what we see there. Well, that could be New Holland. That could be the Dutch mapping the West Coast. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. right. Okay. And Van Diemen's land down the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could be the Dutch. That could be the Dutch. So that could be the Dutch have mapped that, and then the East Coast was, wasn't was mapped, and that's mm. what happened in 1770 or whatever it was. 1788 or whatever it was, yeah, 1770-something. So we leave the maps behind. Um, he's got a few little snippets. And look, I don't think, um, look, he, he says about the Great Pyramid and we sort of thought. The, there's a paragraph. There's a paragraph about the Egyptian pyramid, the Great Pyramid. If you've listened to any of our stuff. Yeah, we're not going to go on with that tonight. More, there's, there's more that we've said about it than what's in that. But I tell you what, for the, for the new listeners, and like it's been five years we've been doing this, probably our best 
episode we ever did early on was Megalith Logistics. That was a fun episode. It was a fun episode. The audio is a lot worse than it is now. However, it still stands up. You know, it's it's and it's it's a funny episode and it's a good one. So go back to that if you want to learn about the Great Pyramid. Check, 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 check it out. Yeah. Uh Megalith Logistics. It was, yeah, anyway. So this this one we hadn't actually seen, right? So Aztec e-plugs. Mm. The Aztec culture, as with many other past cultures, the Mesoamerican region had a love for obsidian. That is, and so much obsidian stuff's been found more recently too, you know. It was mainly used for objects of sacrificial or ritualistic nature and is reasonably common to find at any many South American sites. In case you're unfamiliar with it, obsidian is a very brittle black volcanic glass and is quite difficult to carve or work with. Also kills white walkers, obsidian. <laughs> uh, dragon glass. Um, however, sometime during the past, an unknown Aztec craftsman is believed to have made these wonderful and rather unusual little items, which are thought to be earplugs. And they're not earplugs, they're ear... Like tunnels, the stretches. Yeah. What did we call them the other night? They're not earplugs. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't that's know. what I would have called them, tunnels yeah. or stretches. Yes, that's right, earplugs. We asked to believe that these are made from made by using the typical Aztec tools of the time, such as bamboo drills, stone chisels, and fine sand as abrasive agent. And of course they were, man. What what else they would, would it be made by? Yeah. There's got to be a copper chisel in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> this can be only seen as incredibly unfathomable conclusion because these items are patolished to particular and constant thickness is less than one millimeter throughout. They're perfectly circular, completely symmetrical, and both exactly the same size. Now, just think about that for a moment. Remember, we're talking about earplugs here. These are things are really small, as I'm sure you, really, if you consider the size of an ear, it's not an ear canal. It's their, they're the stretches. Yeah. They're in your, you go into your earlobe. Yeah. yeah, that's what they look like because they're hollow. Yeah, it's a tube. So, what are you yeah. plugging tubes in your ears? Yeah, for? yeah. There was a term when we looked at this the other night that neither of us can think of right now. Plus, they have been made to an incredible degree of precision from obsidian. Just to notice the accuracy of the small flanges protruding from the ends of the items, it is very difficult to imagine someone making these from brittle obsidian, obsidian using primitive, primitive hand tools. tools. If you yeah, so see that, you can sort of see it on the screen there. I don't know, but yeah. It might come out with the white balance if it corrects, but yeah, they look like the types of thing an emo kid would have through mm-hmm. his earlobes. And yeah. the, the little bits on either end hold it in place. Mm-hmm. You know, a little mm-hmm. flange on either end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let us know to too. Let us know too if you can see the screen. Because if you can't, we're already going to do some changes. But if you can't see the screen, let us know because it's really for your benefit. Yeah. Um, however, the most fascinating, interesting thing about these artifacts that under close scrutiny, the unmistakable signs of machining are actually quite clearly visible on the surfaces, making the idea that they were, hand, that they were handmade even more difficult to deal with. You can sort that's a, it's not the best picture, but you can sort of see how perfect they are. Mm. Like, you know, and look, you know, we know the uh, the machines, don't we? Take it away, sir. The mysterious metal vase. In June 1851, Scientific American reprinted a port, a report that had been that had first appeared in the Boston Transcript about a metallic vase that had been discovered by miners. The vase, 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 I keep skipping back and forth, was found in two parts among rubble that had been dynamited out of solid sedimentary rock in Dorchester, Mass. The strange thing, though, 
is that it came from about 15 feet below the surface and was deeply embedded inside the rock. This indicates it had been there for an extremely long period of time. The bell-shaped vase measures four and a half inches high and six and a half inches at its base and consists of a zinc and silver alloy. While the sides are decorated with, with designs of flowers and bouquet arrangements, all inlaid with pure silver. The rock out of which the vase came from came... <laughs> the vase came from came, came from, is... Came from came is estimated at about 100,000 years old. Yeah. So that second came shouldn't be there because mm. it's just is estimated at about 100,000 Oh, yeah. Came years from old. came... Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Sorry, picking up. It doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm impressed with how you just read through that because I couldn't because it was... I'm like, that's <laughs> not meant to be there. <laughs> yeah. How did this vase come to be solidly embedded within 15 feet of solid sedimentary rock? Look at that. It's bloody in that. It's, it's elaborate. It is. Yeah. It's elaborate. It's interesting. Remember too, guys, that you can go to... Uh, I'll put the link to Max's website. Uh, and if you wanted to download the book, you could read along with us if that's what you wanted to do Yeah, in that space. That's a great yeah. pick up there, bro. Because yeah. like you were saying... In the last episode, Max's book is actually free to download. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's worth doing. The Lost Necklace. It is, in fact, it is, it's blah, blah, blah. it is a known fact that coal is formed over thousands of years fallen from fallen timber that has been charred and undergone immense pressure from many years beneath many tons of earth. A lump of coal, therefore, by simple nature of its own creation, is very ancient stuff. There is quite literally no such thing as new coal. Yet one morning... In June of 1891, a Mrs. S.W. Culp of Morrisonville, Illinois, was fragmenting coal into smaller pieces for a kitchen stove when she noticed that one of the lumps she'd broken apart had a chain necklace stuck in it. The chain measured about 10 inches long and was later found to be made of 8-carat gold. Unfortunately, no photograph exists of the necklace since whereabouts is presently unknown. However, the actual event is quite well documented. As accounted by the Morrisonville Times on of June 11, 1891, investigators concluded that the chain, which is described as being of antique and quaint workmanship, had not simply been accidentally dropped in the coal by a worker, since an examination of the item clearly displayed some hard fragments of the coal that still clung on to the links of the chain, while the part of the coal that had been broken apart also still bore the distinct impression where the chain had been encased in it. The reporter of the day described it in this way. Mrs. Culp thought the chain had been dropped accidentally in the coal, but as she undertook the lifted chain up, the idea of it being recently dropped was shown to be fallacious. For as the lump of coal broke and it separated almost in the middle, and the circular position of the chain placed the two ends near to each other, and the lump separated in the middle of the chain became loosened while each end remained fastened to the coal. Had it a finely wrought gold chain come to be firmly encased in a lump of coal? an object that its very existence required it to be many thousands of years old. Obviously, the chain wasn't lost too recently. That's a weird one, eh? Mm-hmm. That's a weird one. Yeah. We might, uh, we might look, there's got the Puma Punku stones. We might. Um, we'll skip that one. We'll skip that we'll skip one. Skip over that one. The Nazca, Nazca lines. lines. You'll do the Nazca lines? Yeah, we'll do the Nazca lines. Do you want to do them? They do. Yeah, I'll do them. Yeah. In continuing our display of oops art, 
mention must of course be given to the enormous motifs, spirals and geometric shapes that appear on the Nazca Plains in Peru. There really are few places on earth more baffling or shrouded in mystery. The actual Nazca civilization was one that had flourished in the area from between 200 BC and 600 AD, but no one really knows the true origins or meaning of the enormous or very mysterious Nazca lines. Just push your mic back a little bit there, bud. Sorry, mate. You're all right, mate. The lines appear etched into a vast plateau 37 miles long, 15 miles wide. Pampa, Colorado, that sits high in the mountains of the Nazca region in Peru. The lines were probably first brought to the wider attention. The sands of time have spoken now. We'll finish of the, the Nazca world lines, by but... Eric von Däniken. In his book, The Chariots of the Gods. Uh, Von Daniken also visited Australia Stonehenge. P.S. Hmm. The etchings are of truly monumental proportions, with the plane containing literally thousands of crisscrossing, zigzagging, spiraling, and parallel lines covering virtually the entire plateau. The lines have been made by simply removing the hard, rocky surface of the plane and exposing the lighter soil beneath. They range in average width from six inches to over six feet and run in absolutely every direction across the plane. Some of the lines are over six miles long, and yet they still run unbroken over plains, hills, valleys, and always remain perfectly straight and true. The motifs they depict include bird, animal, and human forms, astronomical symbols, and interestingly, even one section that seems to look exactly like an enormous long run race runway. Sorry. Oh, it's late. It is late. This will be the last section. The truly gigantic size of these glyphs that are depicted at Nazca also means that none of them at all are visible to a person standing on the ground and only a person viewing them from the air or maybe above the air. Mm-hmm can see that they actually form shapes and pictures. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We haven't... Um... Oh, yeah, I'll finish this Nazca oh. lines off if you want. No, you're right. I'll finish it. Okay. I've got to finish what I started. Okay, man. The Nazca lines were only discovered accidentally when a plane mm. flew over the site in the mid-20th century. And the surprise pilot suddenly noticed them from the air, from the vantage point of the sky. However, they can be clearly seen the huge shapes of a monkey, a hummingbird, and one of the and one that really does look like an astronaut. Interesting. And that's just a few. There are many, many more covering virtually the entire plane. The enormous size of these pictograms really and truly cannot be understated. And it is widely believed that the design blueprint for the Nazca site could only properly <laughs> have been realized from the air. How else would the artist ever know if the design was correct? Mm-hmm. It also seems strange that anyone would go to all the trouble of covering a mountain plateau in huge pictograms that no one who couldn't fly would ever possibly be able to view in the first place. There is simply no apparent point to such an exercise. Yeah, and they're, they're so fascinating. The um, oh yeah, there's your uh, oh yeah, your astronaut. There's man. your astronaut with the helmet on. 
Yeah, it's one of the things we haven't actually really covered, mate. You know, to finish off this episode, we no. never really talked about the Nazca lines. I remember, I remember, I think it might have been, do you know what it probably was? What's that? It was probably Indiana Jones or something like that. No, because that was later. When did I find out about the Nazca lines? It might have been in the encyclopedia deep dives that I used to do in the library in Ballarat when I was cold, I think. Possibly. Um, However, when I remember being young anyway, I remember computing the fact that, hang on a minute, how do they know how to draw the picture if they can't see it? And even if you were to, you know... Walk it out or whatever. Map it out. Mm. Why would you then do that? Mm. Because like it states, there's no way to see what it is mm-hmm. apart from being up in the air. You are, is it the, the translation... He's like, only the gods can see them or something. Yeah. And so, some of those things, on, and, the, you know, I'm sure we might get into this, but some of those, they look like runways. Like, that's the entire tops of mountains that have just been sheared off. Like, mm, they're entirely yeah. flat. Yeah. You know, that's when you say, you know, the ancients couldn't fly, it's like, okay, explain the Nazca lines to me. Yeah. And tell me about why and how they would do that. Yeah. You know? No, it's... Very intriguing. Mm. Along with the rest of the oops art that we've we've discovered mm. or or looked into in in this part of the book. Mm. But anyway, my good man, it's yeah, time. Yeah, we might, might. I'm going to have a bit of a think about the couple of bits of those oops art. Yeah, and, um, we'll come back to them. Yep. But excellent, dude. Until next time. Well, till next week. We'll see you again. No worries, mate. Yeah, look, we don't, we'll we'll get together again soon and do another couple. Yep. Um, I'm excited. Like I could do you know, more tomorrow, but <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Me too. <laughs> no worries, dude. All awesome. Right. Cheers, mate. Catch you later. Peace out, guys. Take it easy, guys. Cheers. Just want to go again. Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you. Been here before. No surprises settle the score I know the darkness deep inside Reckless rage, poison pride I know the anger, I know the pain through I know you I know you Wow